Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week's guest is the incomparable Brad Harrison, founder and managing partner of Scout Ventures. This is another wide-ranging conversation, so we'll actually break this one into two parts as well. On a quick personal note, Brad actually gave me my first job at Venture Capital a little over four years ago. I had worked in finance for about five years and was on my way to business school, and Brad welcomed me to the team for about a year during a really interesting time at Scout. Brad and his partner John took me in, and they showed me the ropes of early-stage venture here in New York, for which I am very grateful. Remember, all of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play on Android devices. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. And also keep those five-star reviews coming in on iTunes. It's actually super helpful. Now I'm going to send it up to Dave to give a little bit more of a preview of this week and next week's episode with Brad. Dave? Hey, everyone. I've just emerged from a fascinating two-hour conversation with the one and only Brad Harrison from Scout Ventures. We could easily have kept talking for another few hours, but we'll have him back another time. And if until now you only knew of him from afar and went in to pitch him or maybe have a coffee at his office, I'm going to guess that you'd have taken one look at this voluble, stocky West Point grad and Army veteran who literally operates out of a glass-enclosed cube within a basement bunker on an anonymous Tribeca side street with a wall behind him full of battle axes, swords, and other military paraphernalia And you'd have said to yourself, I better keep my eye on the exit door. But boy, how mistaken you'd have been. He is truly a study in, quote, seeming contradictions. Because seated in front of all the medals and weapons and crowbars is actually a brilliant graduate of MIT. A guy who's been learning, apprenticing, evolving over these years. He's as cool as they come. He's a very popular figure with the community of his beloved neighborhood, Tribeca where he and his wife are raising their two young children and working and living their lives. Maybe more than any guest, he was literally an open book about his insights gleaned from close to 17 years in early stage investing, the last 11 or so as a professional VC. His learnings just poured out in a torrent, insights on what mix of characteristics and DNA comprise great founding teams, what common early mistakes kill companies, his thoughts on relations between VCs, the critical inflection points investors need to be on top of, the keys to getting his teams to Series A, and then another torrent on his own journey, his personal development, West Point, MIT, AOL, angel investing, his first fund, getting up to speed on emerging tech frontiers, and on and on. What emerged for me was the realization that through the hurly-burly of all these years, Brad has been a remarkably keen observer and participant alike. He's always learning, always pushing himself and his team. He's always trying to master the VC game from every angle. And amidst all the complexities and dynamics and insights and wisdom, he said one thing that stunned me. That at some point he realized that early stage investing is simple. And one needs to have a philosophy and a point of view and certain principles to guide you. This conversation was an elucidation of his philosophy and principles. It was an absolute treat for me. I learned a ton. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. All right, friends, let's head on up to the office. In the office, baby.
really been looking forward to having you on, Brad. Great to have you. Thanks, man. Couldn't be happier to be here. You know, let's just dive right into Scout Ventures. What's the size of the fund? Tell us about the team, the stuff you're looking for. Let's just get that out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. So currently we're raising a $50 million fund. We have uh, three other fund vehicles that are about $20 million in AUM with uh, 61 portfolio companies. Some of them have been uh, small studio checks. We're back in early stage entrepreneurs and some of them has been up to a million dollars. Um, in terms of the team, I have a principal named Brendan Siren and an analyst named Corey Miller. And then I have three full-time venture partners that actually sit in my office with me. So that gives us about six people that, you know, help me manage the portfolio. Tremendous. I know you recently had uh, a very nice exit with, uh, the Olapic team. Tell us a little about that. Yeah. So actually I think you and I met. Right around the same time I met the Olympic guys when I was uh, mentoring at Columbia Business School. And, you know, it was funny because they started their company in the wedding space, which is a vertical I absolutely hate. But I, there was just something about the dynamic of those three as founders that I was just immediately attracted to, right? There was something in the way they laughed with one another and they smiled and their Spanish accents, they just kind of had it. Um, and so I actually wrote them their first check at a coffee shop down here in Tribeca um, so that they could get the money from the Lang Fund. And that was the first $40,000 we put into the company. And then we did a uh, seed round with Great Oaks and then we did a Series A and a Series B. And, you know, basically after, you know, a couple of years of grinding it out and uh, four or five pivots and a lot of mentors and advisors, we found a product market fit that was just unbelievable in the advertising and commerce space. And they took off like a rocket ship. And, you know, one of my proudest moments was walking into their new office at uh, the financial center, um, which was Morgan's, uh, was uh, Merrill Lynch's old trading floor. So imagine these three Spaniards, you know, basically immigrants, come to Columbia Business School, start a company, it becomes so successful that their office space has 10,000 square feet of outdoor space overlooking the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and, to, you know, to be part of that was really great. And, uh, you know, the guy sold the company for $149 million. And to show you how amazing they were, every aspect of the transition, you know, even the, the escrow account, the founders put their investors ahead of everybody else. You know, they had more of their escrow than anybody else so that everybody else could get more cash. Wow. It just, you know, in every category they did right by their investors and their employees. And, you know, we hit the number, right? With every entrepreneur at the beginning of the journey, I say, what number is the number where we would sell the company? No questions asked. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that is because greed can be a very powerful thing. And when you're building a company, sometimes you don't fully underestimate what the true value of the company is. And with these guys... They got offered a number that allowed us to hit the number that we had set out to achieve. 
And so it was a great exit for everybody. And it allowed us to return 50% of our capital to our Fund 1 investors and 120% of our capital to our Fund 1A investors. So for Scott, it was a great cash-on-cash outcome. And, um, you know, it, it, what it really does, Dave, is it reminds me of the roots of what I want to invest in, Right. And, you know, you and I have spent a bunch of time talking about this, but it's like the business is about the founders, right? Our job, our reputation is about entrepreneurs. You know, the first venture deal I ever did was with an entrepreneur named Steve Papa. I met Steve Papa in 1990 when we were freshmen. And I met him at Princeton. He was my best friend's roommate. You know, nine years later, we put an angel investment in his company, and 10 years after that, we sold the company for a billion dollars to Oracle. And subsequently, Steve has become a, an LP in my fund, and we wrote a $500,000 investment into a company called Shoebox, where Steve co-founded it with the other founders. So to me, that life cycle of knowing and being critical to the life of the entrepreneur is what I want Scout to be, right? If we don't do anything else good, if I can always be there for my entrepreneurs and give them good advice, that would be the, you know, the mark of success. And, you know, I, I think the other thing, and, you know, I've been doing venture now since 1999, you know, one of the things is like, I used to not, realize how simple it was, right? In terms of, you know, what are the key things to really be a good VC and what are the key things to make an early stage company successful? Because remember, we're seed stage investors. Right. My my job is to find a great Series A investor and give them a company that we've built a solid foundation on. Hmm. And so at Scout, the way we look at that is a couple of ways. Number one, and this is, you know, become actually a big awakening for us. But, you know, there's four things that kill early stage companies. Number one, running out of capital. Number two, a bad critical hire on the early team. Number three, a bad early investor. And number four, a bad anchor, customer, or partner. Because when you're a small company with limited resources, you can't afford to make critical mistakes that that really derail your focus, right? And so what we realized is instead of trying to be everything to these entrepreneurs who already have so many things that they're worried about, right? Being an entrepreneur is literally the loneliest job in the world, right? There's, no, there's nobody else to do that. So what we want to be is that trusted partner that helps them at these key inflection points. So on capital, we make sure we look at the health of the company and we look at the fundraising requirements six, nine, 12 months out so that it's never a surprise where we are with capital. In terms of critical hires, with a lot of our companies, when we get to the inflection points where we're hiring a critical hire, whether it be a new chief engineer, uh, sales, marketing, you know, we actually interview those candidates with the CEO because, you know, part of the advantage of starting to be the older, gray-haired, bearded guy yeah. is that I've just sat with so many more candidates 
So part of it is the same way you sit with an entrepreneur and you get an instinctive feeling about they're going to be successful. The exact same thing applies when we're hiring. So that's what we do on hiring. Avoiding a bad investor is critical. You know, I think you and I talked about it when all of a sudden early stage got popular you would get all of these finance or real estate guys that would come in and want to add out-of-market terms or do things that were not consistent for the benefit of the company, and that would be very distracting, right? They want special reports. They want a coupon. They want things that just don't make sense. So we make sure they avoid that, and part of helping them avoid that is giving them a ton of introductions to potential smart investors that we like working with, that we know are going to add value. You know, we're very fortunate in the New York ecosystem that there's a bunch of really smart angels and really smart micro VCs. You know, I had lunch with uh, Ben Sun the other day from Primary, and I've known Ben since Community Connect, right? I've known Ben 11, 12 years, right? When him and Court Cunningham were running that. And, you know, we just have the exact same philosophy on how to add value to companies and how to build companies. And so because I know fundamentally we have the same philosophy, I know I'm never going to have an issue with Ben and Brad when we invest in a company together. And that's another really big step. And then the last one is making sure they avoid the pitfalls of, oh, you know, we've been working with IBM and IBM is going to give us a strategic contract worth $750,000. And so we don't need to raise any more money. And then it takes IBM five management changes in two years to never do the deal. And if that's the only deal in the bullpen, the company falls short. Right. They fall short on capital. They fall short on revenue. They fall short on all these key metrics. And, you know, we normally know within the first six months if we've made a good decision investing in that option. Why, why is that? So I, I would say the first thing is that right, you can only do so much due diligence, right? You can only ask so many questions, reference checks, sit with the entrepreneur. You know, sometimes you take them out drinking to see how they react or, or <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, but in the first six months, normally there's a couple of critical hires. So you see how well they've, they've hired. Normally there's some sort of definitive commitment to the product, right, in terms of features, revenue model, and all of that. And number three, we get to see how they communicate with us over those six months. You know, do they text me before they have a big decision to make, or do they text me after to tell me something didn't go well, right? And what I love, um, you know, we have a, a great entrepreneur we worked with named Ben Abel that started a company called Voyat. And I remember Ben, before I ever wired him money, he sent me a text and he said, you know, we're, we're trying to close our, our C2 round and investor so-and-so is taking an extra four weeks and I'm afraid I'm going to miss payroll. And I said, well, you know, Ben, I've already committed to you. Like, I'm happy to wire the money early. And he said, Brad, if you would do that, 
the lead investor said you can do that on the note as opposed to the new valuation. Mm. So I, I wired money 21 days earlier than I would have. I, I took all the stress of him making payroll off of the plate. I got a hefty discount on my money right. for taking you know a little bit of risk. And I think at Scout, we've done that now 11 times. Um, and we've actually done it 12 times. 11 times it's worked out successfully. And one time, the larger deal didn't actually get done. Mm-hmm. And the company was then a little undercapitalized. But even that entrepreneur has been so appreciative that he's actually a cash flow break even. And he's going to slowly start paying back the debt. Right? The company isn't going to be the big success we thought it was going to be. But because I have that direct relation with the entrepreneur, they really are, are committed to returning the capital. And actually, out of both of our primary funds, Fund 1 and Fund 2, in all except for two portfolio companies in each fund, we've received some return of capital. And, and I think that's because, number one, when we know in the first six months it's not going to be a grand slam, we don't lie to ourselves. We don't go try to sell the deal to someone else and say, hey, write a big check and that'll fix everything. What we really do is we take a hard look in the mirror and say, hey, this isn't going to work out. What, what asset have we built? You know, how much money? And, and then we create a liquidity event. So with our company Live Ninja, which we just sold to IDT, which is a public company, You know, nine months ago in the board meeting, you know, kind of as the lead board director, I said to the guys at City and Comcast and, you know, everybody else, I said, guys, you know, we're just not going to get where we need to get. The product is too far behind. The revenue is too far behind. And they were working on this big strategic deal with um, Apple, and it just didn't convert into the revenue. And so all of the factors that I told you are the factors that can kill early stage companies presented themselves. Mm -hmm. And so rather than try to throw a bridge, we just decided, okay, let's find a home. And so, you know, we found a home. We've already received back 70% of our capital, and we'll get the rest of it, hopefully, over you know the next 12 to 18 months that that's tremendous let me let me uh drill down a little bit with you on the communication side because i've heard this a lot okay you know calicanis has has talked about it publicly you know he actually will put uh some language in his own term sheet that you know along with information rights you need to send me an update every month <laughs> or, I, or i won't do the deal um we, we're we're doing the exact same thing with fund three we actually, we actually built a proprietary GPLP portfolio company reporting tool. And it started as, I think I actually showed it to you, it started as an Excel spreadsheet that I would send to every company. You know, date founded, current address, number of full-time employees, part-time employees, cash in the bank. Yeah. yeah. Right? Remember that? Yeah, so, I do, yeah. So, and what happened was with the original Excel spreadsheet, what it allowed me to do is number one, see the, the mean data of the portfolio and then identify the outliers on the positive and on the negative, right? So it was a great snapshot. So now we have this tool called Portfolio Watch, which I'm going to get you to use on the beta. And, you know, it's designed for angel investors and funds. 
And it's got a module where the portfolio companies have to report their data on a quarterly basis. And it allows us to aggregate that data and actually in the the system, if you're an LP, you can look at the data and compare it at any one company to another company. How many employees, how much money have they raised, you know, what's their growth rate? And a lot of that, Dave, is is kind of you know, the communication tools to identify the positive and the negative so that there's no surprises. Let's uh, spend a moment on this. I mean, this is something that I, I too have noticed. When founders don't update their investors for months at a time, and for the founders listening, uh, I, th- I think this is, this is critical. It, it creates a, a strange situation between the investor and the founder. Investors <laughs> don't know what's going on. They don't feel like they're in the loop. And then when you present them with a problem, you know, you need to catch them up. They need to get up to speed and it takes a lot of time and it's a waste of time. And so are you, you said for this portfolio watch thing, it's a quarterly thing. Do you, are you going to be asking your founders to update you monthly or quarterly? And how do you really like it? Yeah. I mean, so I would say at a minimum, we talk to our portfolio companies about every two weeks and you know we split that we split that responsibility across the you know the primary team and the venture partners and we have portfolio company meetings on a um, every pretty much every two weeks sometimes it goes a little bit longer and so we as a team share the information in in my mind a lot of what I do is drop very short direct emails, texts, and phone calls to be both supportive and available, right? And normally we know what's going on. So, okay. you know, Ryan Fight and I, I'm a, you know, I'm the lead director at Seed Invest. I've been with Ryan. We're working on a couple of things. You know, we have a great relationship. You know, we, t- we try to talk on a weekly basis. And so, you know, yesterday we had three or four things to go over. You know, boom, texted him, got on the phone, went through it, you know, and I feel like, I feel like the difference for me is the entrepreneurs are saying to me, hey, Brad, you know, your advice is so much more on point now. You seem more focused. And I think it's because I'm ingesting the right information at the right interval to to help them with the cadence of building their business, right? So, you know, in some of these early stage companies, they tell you what the product's going to be, and it takes six, nine, 12 months to build the product, right? You can't harass them about revenue when they're in product build phase, right? So understand where you are in the life cycle of the company and how to support the founder. Um, And I think, you know, it's really important that you don't bust chops, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just not productive. You know, I I really hate it when I I see people overemphasizing a point with the entrepreneur where clearly the entrepreneur knows they made a mistake or they didn't do something good, but the investor won't let it drop. They just keep hammering the entrepreneur, right? Like, you, you know, listen, you make your point. You figure out a strategy or go forward solution and then move on and be supportive, right? It's, you know, you and I discussed the, the older brother mentality. Yeah. 
and I and I, and I think that's it. You know, sometimes you push them a little bit harder, but always, you know, you're supposed to be their support, and that, that's how I view it. Right. And and last question on this topic: when and when founders are not updating their investors, what approach do you take? So I, I think that's really bad signaling on two fronts. Number one, it concerns me that they are not properly managing their team, right? But if you just on a weekly basis with your key staff have a simple report that goes over, you know, finance, personnel, management issues, operational issues, key partnerships, product, you know, if you, if you just have a, a simple set of metrics and KPIs, at least everybody's on the same page. Whether things are going good or bad, it's like a common language. And so for us, when we don't see that, we think it trickles down and impacts the effectiveness of the team. So the reason we want to see that is because it's also a tool for the entrepreneur to better manage their team. And when we don't see it, it's normally one of the first red flags that the six-month period is going to turn out that it wasn't a good decision. Uh, very helpful. Uh, we talk about the, the first six months. We talk about the, the company killers, the bad early hires, the bad early investor, the running out of money, the over-reliance on, on a big potential customer, all potential company killers. Let's talk about founder dynamics. You know, you've been yeah. at this a long time now. You, you've developed a lot of insights, a lot of learning. You got, I see the gray beard there. You're, the folks who are, who are listening, I, I, I'm looking at Brad here on Skype. He's in his bunker in Tribeca. He's got all the swords and battle axes on the wall from his military days. <laughs> He's pacing around. He's got the gray beard going. What, what have you learned about the founder dynamic of teams that succeed? Yeah, so, you know, I, as much as being an entrepreneur is super lonely because, you know, you feel all the pressure and all of that, building companies is a team sport. You can't do it alone, right? And so for us, we started looking at, like, the data on what successful companies look like. Was there one founder, two founder, three founders, or more than three founders, right? Obviously, you know, more than three founders, too many cooks in the kitchen, one founder, maybe too much resting on one individual. So we actually really like teams with two to three founders, right? Because we think it gives it a really good balance. We only invest in proprietary technology. So for us, having a technical and non-technical founder also adds a very good level of balance, right? Because you not only need to be able to build great product, you need to know how to sell and market that great product, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we, we really like that balance because it, it just, again, we, we like that dynamic and the, the energy it creates and the dialogue it creates. Um, and then, you know, lastly, I think it's really interesting to just see how the founders communicate and treat one another. And you can normally see that um, before you even write a check in the way they um, normally answer questions in brief. Do they step on top of each other? Does one of them answer all of the questions? Do they look at each other when you ask a hard question 
to pause before they respond? You know, like, do they do those very subtle things? And a lot of these things, they come out of my time at the Special Forces Warfare School, just understanding how to read body language in people, right? Um, And I think for us, you know, I love the guys at Bespoke Post, Rishi and Steve, and they are such an amazing team. They're the type of team that thinks about what they say and kind of makes eye contact and like has a nonverbal moment before they answer the question, right? You can see it. And so you, you can't fake that. You, you know, you just can't fake that. And by the way, you know, those guys are profitable. You know, they did, I, I, you know, I probably can't tell you, but let's just say they're doing a lot of revenue for uh, a very small company and they're great at execution and they're great at building their team and it's because they're thoughtful, right? One of the things that's been a big trend and at Scout we are fully a supporter of meditation, meditation, yoga, whatever you need to really be more mindful and thoughtful at the beginning of the day which we then think carries through the actions through the day. So we're actually, we'll invite you, we're actually going to do a, um, a meditation session with a bunch of our entrepreneurs and uh, an, an awesome woman named Ali Bogard is going to lead that. You know, I, I tell every team when they hit a certain inflection point, like take your key management and pay for them to get transcendental meditation training because I think that thoughtfulness, right, about how you interact with employees and how you respond, like that, that is something that, you know, five years ago, I would get so frustrated and I would like knock papers off my desk and get all bent out of shape. And now I don't do that at all. Yeah. It doesn't mean I don't get as frustrated from the same situation, but I've realized that taking that moment of pause being mindful allows what I then put out to be much more impactful and thus better for the company and the investment and everything. So, you know, I think those are the things you want to see. Like it's really good when you see um, entrepreneurs that are very thorough, right? Um, The guys at uh, League Apps, um, Brian Litvick and uh, Jeremy, you know, I remember when those guys were a three-person team, and from the very beginning, I was always invited as part of their leadership summit to go talk to the team and share thoughts. And, you know, that started, it was three people, then it was seven people, then it was 12 people, then it was 20 people, now there are 55 people. You know, the guys at Contour Ventures are the lead on their current round. You know, they're generating millions and millions of dollars of transactions, and they've always been thoughtful. They have a good balance. You know, Jeremy has been a little bit more on the fundraising strategic partnership side. Brian has been a lot on understanding what the product and the team needs to do to, like, create a proprietary solution. And so because they're thoughtful, 
And because they do good reporting, and because we have a very clear plan, it's easy to see the positive results because we're executing. Tremendous. Uh, Let's talk about founder relationships between the founders. We talked a little about between the investor and the founder. You know, I've mediated and helped break up so many co-founder fights over the years. Um, What do you say to them in the beginning? You know, because they're going to, they're going, they're about to go through an unbelievable grind for many years. It's going to get massively stressful. You've talked about the meditation. I I get that. Um, What do you tell them in the beginning? And then when the inevitable disagreements occur. So you and I are both married um, and founders are, are married. Yeah. Right. Like if you're going to build a billion dollar company, that's going to be a ride with ups and downs and challenges and things that go well and things that don't go well. So the first thing I always say is know your role, define your role, own your role and make sure everybody's comfortable with their role. Right. Because the, the most, you know, like I'm not a fan of like co-CEO. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not a fan of that. Like one of you is going to be CEO. Who's going to be CEO? And like, let's make sure that everybody agrees with that choice. And by the way, that person is going to have a different level of responsibility than the co-founder that's the head of sales. Right. And, you know, I find that what what often happens and this is across multiple companies is that there's this inflection point where sales and marketing is not growing at the rate that I want to see it. Mm -hmm. And there's always one founder that's kind of been in charge of sales, but isn't really a traditional sales and marketing person. But that was the role that they took off at the beginning. And they struggle going to find that VP of sales because they feel like it's somehow they're giving up their responsibility and their other founders, CEO, and what's my job going to be? And does that mean I'm not going to have value? You know, listen, the roles change over time too, right? What, what you start doing might not be what you end doing, but I think the other thing is to have a set of rules, right? Uh, you know, what are the key things, right? So the same way, you know, there's certain habits that I have that I know annoy my wife, mm-hmm. you know, I just try to avoid those behaviors, right? And it's, this, <laughs> and it's the same thing with founders, right? You know, one founder might be really passionate and doesn't understand how to calmly share an idea with the other founder. And so the other founder feels like they're always getting yelled at. Um, when, when in actuality, it's just their co-founder's super passion, and it's just stylistically. So I think it's important to have rules for having a healthy relationship. I also think it's really important to develop things outside of the office. Yes, yes. You know, like we're, you know, at Scout, we as a team probably eat lunch together two to three days a week. And the other days, you know, we eat with VCs, but, you know, it it gives us that moment of pause during the day where we don't have a computer and we don't have an iPhone and we don't have everything in front of us um, and we can just talk, 
right, as people. And I think that's important. I think the other thing, and, you know, something that uh, sometimes annoys my team, but I think that if you're having a meeting, there should not be phones in the meeting. Mm. So I read this interesting thing that even having the phone on the table is a psychological distraction. Wow, yes. Right? So, you know, like, when I started doing this, People didn't have mobile phones. We were, you know, it was, we were people, a couple of people had pagers, right? But nobody had mobile phones. And then people had StarTax, right? Like way back right, when. And, right. You know, it was a flip phone. It was not a smartphone. You couldn't get distracted. So I, um, you know, I think it's really important when you're having key meetings um, to make sure you leave your phone outside of the room so that you really are committed to... Um, being present in the meeting. And then the last thing, which I think is a piece of advice that I've gotten from quite a few mentors, um, is you really got to be an active listener. You have to, you have to force yourself not to talk, right? Um, Even if you have something really insightful to say, it's a lot of times it's way better to just jot down a few notes listen, process, and then respond. And, you know, a lot of times I use the Socratic method where after I digest the information, I actually ask a question before I answer, right? So that I allow the the processing of their information to both acknowledge that I understand what they're saying and I use that question to hopefully spark an intellectual thought in their mind that says, oh, wow, that question now has made me think about something with a different perspective. And hopefully, before I even open my mouth, their brain is already starting to think about what I want them to think about. And I think that's really important, that active listening and asking questions often makes a better, healthier relationship um, rather than talking all the time. And you know me, I talk a lot, so it's hard for me. Oh, you think? Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? <laughs> <laughs>